Father God, we thank you for the word that you have given us through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. We pray, Father, over the next few weeks as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, that you would give us insights into marriage, into singleness, into divorce, into topics that matter. We ask, Father, that you would guide our time today as we look at the first part of this chapter. Direct us, guide us, take your inspired and errant word, and instruct us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Today's sermon is largely on one aspect of marriage. So because it's on marriage, and many of you are married, some of you will be married, I thought that I would give you five pieces of advice that I have read from secular studies. The first is out of the University of Pittsburgh, and it's by Dr. Heather Gunn, a psychologist and sleep specialist. And she lets us know that if spouses overlap their sleeping time by 90%, they will have much elevated feelings of joy and happiness in their marriage. If spouses overlap their sleeping by less than 50%, there will be a remarked decrease in the desire of marriage within those couples. That's just one study. And sometimes it doesn't work within one's work schedule, but when it does, spend time together. Second, marriage satisfaction increases greatly when one has not his calendar and her calendar, but our calendar. Think of when you were dating or when you were on a honeymoon. You did things together. You sat by the fire together. You ate together. You took walks together. You did activities together. But as you are married for a long period of time, if you, I, we are not careful, we pretty much sometimes have his calendar and her calendar rather than our calendar. And again... Secular studies show that the more we have our calendar, the more time we spend together, the more successful the marriage will be. Third, Dr. John Gottman tells us that this marriage specialist and author tells us that his studies say that even small regular compliments make a big difference in marriage. You might say, well, I already complimented her cooking like three years ago. Do I need to do it again? Like, yeah. I already complimented him for what he does for the family. I did it last week. Do I need to do it this week? Like, yeah. In fact, his study says that even if the compliments are repetition from day to day to day to day, regular compliments from one spouse to the other, increases joy within marriage. Fourth, small things really matter. Small things. Picking up one's socks, if that is a big deal. Or cleaning the house, or taking out the garbage, or cutting the lawn. Small things really matter. And that flows into the next one. Kara Lawler, who has a blog for mothering and uh, wifing, and no, I don't regularly read her blog, 
But she says less communication in certain areas really augments marriage. Now, some of the guys are saying, yeah, less communication. That's what I've been saying all along. She said less communication in certain areas. What her research shows is that we need to discuss areas that matter and let other areas go. When the husband comes in and leaves his shoes in the hall for the like 10,000th time, let it go. When he throws his coat over the couch rather than ha- let it go. When her car is not picked up and up to his standards because she like has three kids all day, let it go. Save communication on areas where we're wanting change for big things, character things. Less communication in small irritants actually improves one's marriage. Okay, five suggestions from the world. Good suggestions. I think all of us might take one of them and apply it to our lives. But let's now turn to the master on marriage. Let's turn to the Lord. This is what God had Paul write in 1 Corinthians 7. I want to read verses 1 to 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So you remember back in chapter 1, we have a group called Chloe's People. Paul had been to Corinth and had to leave. And they had some questions in Corinth that Paul didn't answer while he was there. So a group called Chloe's People, we don't know much about them, they come with some questions. This is one of the questions. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? That's a question posed to Paul, and now he gives the answer. Because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command. This is, Paul is giving some advice from his own life. I say this, I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. How is Paul? He's single. He says, You know what? I wish you all were single. It would be good for the kingdom. It would be good for your relationship with the Lord. But not all of you have the gift of singleness. That's what he's saying. I wish that all of you were as myself am. But each one has his own gift from God. Notice, he's calling marriage a gift. He's calling singleness a gift. The word charisma or charismata, he's saying those gifts like teaching and tongues and leadership, and discernment, and wisdom. There's also gifts called marriage and singleness. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than be aflame with passion. 
Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes my mind spins a bit out of control at the relationship complexity that is part of our day and age. And you have all these little titles, and if you don't use the title in the wrong way, the you know, political correctness police will stomp on you, and what is an acceptable term one year might be a hate term the next, and it's all very complex. But when I feel overwhelmed by the complexity, I remember that Scripture, while historically conditioned, written to Corinth, is written for all days. God is omniscient. He knows all things. And he allowed Scripture not only to be written to the first century, but the 21st century simultaneously. And we need to remember that Paul did not live in a monolithic society in which everyone adhered to one type of morality. It's not like that at all. In fact, we know that Paul lived in a day and age where there was all sorts of complexity with relationships. He lives in a day and age where we have unearthed temples to false gods and goddesses, 26 different gods and goddesses in the areas of Corinth and Athens alone. And many of these are fertility cults. That means that people would go to a temple which was serviced by a priest or a priestess who was a prostitute engage in acts of immorality in order to entice the gods to bring fertility on the land, good bumper crops, or even fertility in the womb. In addition to that, we know that in Paul's day, it was not uncommon for people to have paramours, lovers on the side. Concubinage was a real deal. Going to brothels was a regular part of life. In fact, many husbands viewed their wives as the woman who would bear legitimate children and even as an economic deal maker. You could look at Corinth as the poster child for the objectification of women and its twin immorality. Almost as disturbing... Corinth was living under Roman laws, which had four, four types of marriage. Not one, four. Now remember that in the Roman Empire, which was quite vast, we have 50 million slaves. Now slavery, as we view it from an American point of view, is not quite what we have in the Roman Empire. Ours, quite frankly, was far more sinister. Slaves in the Roman Empire actually earned a salary and eventually could save enough to purchase their own freedom, where we know that that was not true in the vileness of American slavery. But any form of slavery is failing to understand that every person is made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. Well, see, one type of marriage was specifically for slaves. It was called contaburnium. It was called tent companionship. This is evil. If a man and a woman were owned by a slave master and they decided to get married, it would be a tent companionship. They could be married as long as that owner didn't sell one or the other. 
But as soon as he sold one or the other, that marriage was broken up by the slave master. Utterly evil. That was one type of marriage. Usus is a second type of marriage. This is common law marriage. Nobody goes before a priest or a pastor or a magistrate, but a man and a woman live together, and if they stay together for one year, under Roman law, they were considered husband and wife. Now, we know that Usus marriages were the shortest in the Roman Empire. That is, they didn't last very long because there was no real commitment made. It's kind of like living together today. Statistics tell us that those relationships don't last very long compared to those who get the piece of paper who make a legal commitment in marriage. So that was the second time, usis. The third type is comptio in manum. I think this is sinister. As a father of three daughters and a grandfather of a granddaughter, I think this is just pure evil. I don't understand this, but this is a father selling his daughter to an older man. This is enslaving a child. This is human trafficking, evil in every generation. And finally, there was confariatio. This is what we view marriage today in the United States generally. This was... A marriage that had a ceremony, had a priest, had a pastor, had a magistrate. Listen to this. The woman wore a veil. There was the exchange of rings. There were attendants. They celebrated with a cake. There was a document given. There was the exchanging of vows. And there were flowers. That's where we get what we have today in the Orthodox churches, the Catholic churches, the Protestant churches, it comes out of this fourth type of marriage. In addition to all of this, as I've already mentioned, there was brothels, there was concubinage, there was free love, there was paramours on the side, and there was going to temples, fertility cults. The complexity is overwhelming. We also know that they didn't value marriage much in the Roman Empire. We have documents talking about people being married and divorced up to 20 times in what was a shortened lifespan. So when I feel overwhelmed by the complexity of relationships in the 21st century, I need to remember that God is omniscient. He knows all things, and he guided the authors to write what was necessary in the 1st century and the 21st century simultaneously. And in verse 1, Paul is given a question, again by Chloe's people, is it good for a man to have sexual relations with his wife? Now you say, well, that's a strange question. Why would they ask it? Well, remember that ancient Corinth is 60 miles from Athens. They were two cities that worked together. And in Athens, we have, we have the home of Plato. Plato was born in 429 B.C. He had the academy, and, and he had all sorts of intellectual aspects to his understanding, but he also had a dualistic understanding of humanity. Dualism. 
Platonic thought is dualistic thought. That the soul spirit is eternal, and when one dies, the soul spirit goes to wherever it goes, and the body dies and goes into the ground and is never to be used again. Therefore, the soul spirit is good, the body is evil. It makes no difference what you do with the body. That's Platonic thought. That's what dominates this area. That's what dominates this era in this area. Well, the church knew enough to know that that wasn't right. In fact, Paul will talk in 1 Corinthians 15 that not only is the soul spirit eternal, but the body is eternal as well. So it matters what you and I do with the body. They understood that. They knew that Plato was wrong, that it was an unbiblical view. And so they swung their philosophical pendulum all the way to the other side, and some began to teach that asceticism, even in marriage, was best because clearly intimacy must be dirty and wrong. And so some come from the church and they say, Paul, is it good if a man does not have relations with a woman? And Paul answers and says, no, no. It's not good. Listen to just a little bit of scripture. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in high regard by all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's God's view on the topic. For Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? That is, should you go to a paramour? Should you go to a brothel? Should you go to a fertility cult? No. Let them be for yourself alone and not for your strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. If you think... That the text is a bit graphic, you got it. It's a bit graphic. Or in the words of Paul, in verses 2 to 5, intimacy within marriage is God-given. God directed the first being to have a sexual thought was God who created it good within the bounds of a husband-wife marriage relationship. In fact, Paul uses language that I think some in our day would be offended by it. Maybe you will be. I don't know. He says the husband does not have authority over his own wife, exousia. He doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And the wife does not have authority, exousia, over her own body, but the husband does. And he uses the present tense. It's not a one-time activity. And I think he's talking about more than just intimacy. He's talking about a husband who lives with the priority being his wife, and the wife who lives with the priority being the husband. Selfishness in marriage damages the marriage. But as the husband tries to outdo the wife, and the wife tries to outdo the husband, in every area of marriage, the marriage gets better and better, and it's an upward spiral. But when one or both try and get everything they can out of marriage, and they're in it for themselves, it's a downward spiral, and the marriage gets worse. Indeed, verse 3 is overt, isn't it? The husband 
should give to her wife, or his wife, her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. When things are physiologically normal, intimacy is to be a regular part of a marriage relationship. Now, let's be honest. Paul goes on to say some rather crass things, but it's not Paul, it's God speaking to us. So it feels crass, but it's inspired, inerrant, it's biblical truth. He says that one of the reasons for intimacy is because we lack self-control. Is that the only reason? No. This is one of those areas where Scripture instructs Scripture. What we mean by that is that if we had only one passage in isolation, 1 Corinthians 7, we might come to the conclusion that intimacy in marriage is only because some people lack self-control. But Scripture instructs Scripture. We have lots of reasons, four very specific reasons, given to us in Scripture for intimacy. I'm going to use somebody else's P's to give them. Procreation. So in Genesis 1, 28, God says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Procreation for some husbands and wives is a beautiful offspring of intimacy. God gave us that as one reason for procreation. A second is pleasure. Song of Songs 4.10, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spices? I didn't read the context, but it's pretty metaphorical and, and it can be kind of graphic. And if you read Song of Songs 4 and 5, you get the idea that, that intimacy is a gift from God for a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. Not only for procreation, but also for pleasure. The third is partnership. You remember what God says in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. A man shall leave his father and mother. That is the preeminence of the relationship under God is now husband and wife. A man shall leave his father and mother. Cleave, that's the permanency of marriage. Cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. They make each other the priority. So we have... Procreation, pleasure, partnership with three more sub-Ps, and purity. Isn't that what today's text focuses on? Let me read verses 2 and 5 again. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. These are not my words. Honestly, I would never be so brash as to say them. But they're God's words. They're inspired. They're inerrant. Procreation, pleasure, partnership, purity. God gives intimacy to a husband and wife in a marriage relationship for all of these reasons. In this regard, uh, I want to illustrate just one of them, that partnership. There is a man named Dave. And Dave was a professional makeup artist. That's what he did for a living. On the side, he also taught at his local community college. Periodically, they would allow him to teach a course on the best types of a makeup and applying it. 
Now, I don't know anything about makeup. I don't know the difference between a bronzer, an eyeliner, mascara. I am blissfully ignorant. I'm going to remain that way. I don't know a thing. But in these classes, Dave says that the average student is a middle-aged woman who just wants to learn more about makeup and how to apply it. In one of his classes, in addition to the 15 or 20 women, there was one man. He was a 60-year-old man, and he was a very good student. He took careful notes, asked very important, critical questions, and wrote everything down. He was very serious about this. Well, the other women were curious. What's with this guy? Why is he in the class? And after two or three weeks, they got to know him, and one of them became bold enough and said, Hey, give us your story. Why are you here learning about makeup? He said, Well, my wife uh, has diabetes, and through diabetes, she lost her sight. My wife can no longer put on makeup. I always tell her. I tell her all the time. She's beautiful. She doesn't need makeup. She knows that I feel that way, but she doesn't want to go out in public without makeup, and she can't put it on. And so I'm secretly taking this class to learn about makeup so I can buy the best makeup and I can apply it well to accentuate her inner beauty. Now that's a husband who loves his wife and serves his wife. It's a good model for all of us. It's part of partnership. A few days ago, uh, Daniel Milkovich went to be with the Lord. I had the privilege of doing Daniel and Maggie's wedding seven and a half years ago. And I'll have the privilege of doing his homegoing service in a couple weeks. What you may not know about Daniel is this. I'm not talking about the honeymoon, guys. Women don't listen. This is, this is embarrassing to the rest of us, guys. Women don't listen. But I'm not talking about the honeymoon, guys. But for seven and a half years... Every morning, Daniel got up, made breakfast for his wife, and served her breakfast in bed. Seven and a half years. Every day, he served his wife breakfast in bed. Whoa. That's a man who wants to serve his wife. Well, Paul not only talks about marriage, but he also talks about singleness, which we'll do at greater length in the coming weeks. And as I've already mentioned, he calls both marriage and singleness a charisma, a charismata, a gift. A spiritual gift like leadership, or wisdom, or discernment, or giving, or knowledge or teaching, or administration, or evangelism. Those are all spiritual gifts. Those are charismata. He says that there are also two other gifts. There's the gift of marriage, and there's the gift of singleness. And if you know anything about the spiritual gifts, they're in 1 Corinthians 7 and 12 and 14. They're in 1 Peter 4 and Romans 12. And Ephesians 4, those are the passages about spiritual gifts. We're told that they're given to us as raw gifts, and we need to exercise, grow, and develop those gifts. So if you're in marriage, you need to develop the gift of marriage so that you, me, we are the best partners that we can be. 
If you have the gift of singleness, even if it's only a temporary gift, and you hope someday to get married, develop the gift of singleness. And Paul is going to say in this chapter that those who have the gift of singleness actually have a spiritual benefit over those who are married because those who are married have their their priorities divided with spouses and children. In other words, those who are single ought to have a white-hot walk with the Lord. Those who are married ought to have a white-hot walk with the Lord, but those who are single actually have an advantage spiritually over those who are married. But you know what the statistics tell us in the United States? Born-again singles go to church less often than born-again families. Born-again singles serve less than born-again families. Born-again singles give less than born-again families. Now, I don't know anything about the giving practices here at Highland. I don't know anything. I don't have access to that. I don't try and have access to that. But I can tell you the other two are not part of Highland. We have lots of very engaged singles. Praise the Lord. We have lots of singles who are serving well, who are making church things a priority, who are honoring God and using the gift of singleness. In other words, as I observe our singles as a whole, they do not follow the national average. Well done. But whether you're married or whether you're single, God says we need to exercise the gift given to us. Marriages we need to be praying for, working at, investing being left self-centered, Jeff, and more other-centered. And singles, taking advantage of the gift of singleness to even be more close, more intimate with the Lord. You see, whether you're married or single, it's still the same. God first, others second, self third. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for 1 Corinthians 7 and several weeks that we will be in this chapter. Speak to us through it. Encourage us, challenge us, equip us in ways that are honoring and glorifying to you and advancing of your kingdom. For those who are married, help us to invest in our marriage. For those who are single, Help them to invest in their singleness, even if they hope someday to be married. Father, help us to have the priorities right. You first, others second, self third. Help us to live for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.